Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello, can I please speak with Salman Rushdie? Yes, that's me. Hello, Salman. This is Paul, Paul Holdengraber, calling you from the quarantine tapes. I am so delighted that you could be part of this endeavor presented by Dublab and Onassis LA. I must tell our listeners that at the very start of the quarantine tapes, nearly 11 months ago, I asked you if you could be a part of it then, and you couldn't. And I'm happy that now you can. What has happened during that time? Um, why couldn't you back then? And where do I find you at the present time? Well, one of the things that happened to me in March last year was that I, I got the coronavirus and was not well for a few weeks. But I'm happy to say that I had it much less badly than the, the many people who who had it much worse than me. So I, mean, I, I was well again by, by April. And since then, you know, I've been hunkered down in New York trying to get on with life in these strange circumstances. And one of the things that intrigued me so much but surprised me not at all is that part of the way in which you've been spending this time, apart from writing, of course, and we'll get to that in a moment, is... You've been giving yourself, as you say, a private film festival. And I remember, Salman, many, many years ago, you may remember too, that we spoke about that and we spoke about how movies meant so much to you and how excited you were at that moment when in uh, movie houses you would be expecting to see a Godard movie or a Fellini movie, or a Buñuel movie, or a Kurosawa movie, or a Herzog movie. So tell me a little bit, if you could, yeah. about that that return, I wouldn't say to childhood, but that return to an early passion. It really was when I was at university, when I was at Cambridge. There was a little kind of art house theatre, which is long gone, uh, in, in just, just in central in, in the central university area off the Market Square. and it was, called, it was called the Art Cinema. And I used to go there several times a week. It had a kind of rotation of movies every couple of days. And, and that's where I discovered, you know, the French New Wave, the Italian New Wave, the, the, just the amazing cinema that was being made in that period. I mean, I guess from the from the middle to late 1950s to the early 1970s was this period which people now think of as the golden age of cinema. And, and it was just very exciting when those were this week's new movies. You know, when you would go to the movie theater and you would see, as you say, you see the new Godard and the next week there would be the new Fellini and the week after that there'd be an Antonioni yeah. and the week after that an Ingmar Bergman and 
and so on. And it was thrilling, you know. And I, so I thought in this, one of the great advantages of this moment is the, is the availability of, on streaming services of, of, of most movies ever, ever made. You know, you can, you can summon them up in your own home. And, and so that's what I decided to do. I decided to go back to revisit many of the films that made me fall in love with the movies. And it really has helped me get through this time. You know, Salman, I've always been interested, perhaps more recently than in the past, in the relationship between age and taste, how we go back to things, how we find them again, what we are faithful to, what age as well. And I'm wondering, in the long list of movies you've been seeing, uh, perhaps on the Criterion Channel and other such places, how yeah. the, how movies have aged for you. And, you know, I could take a few examples that I think are probably kindred to us both. Movies by Eric Romer, let's say, Manuie Chemaud or Claire Zny, mm. or Bunuel, mm. The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, or for that matter, uh, for me so importantly, Les 400 Coups, The 400 Blows, or Fellini movies, but how how have they aged? I recently watched Manuie Chemaud, which when I was growing up was perhaps one of the most important movies of, really was my sentimental education, talking about Pascal in bed always seemed to me so wonderful. But, I'm one, <laughs> but, but I, I watched it again and I wasn't as enthralled as I had been. Eric Romer, uh, I mean, those two films you mentioned, Manuiche Maud and Claire's Knee, which I loved when I was 19. Yeah, you know? um, I, 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 I loved rather less um, at, at, this, at this advanced age of 73. <laughs> there were films that stood up very well. I mean, actually, um, Godard and Truffaut both stand up very well. You know, Les Quatre Sans Coups, which is, I mean, can I just do my nerd thing? It Please. should not be translated. It should not be translated as the 400 blows. There, there are no blows in the movie. But that's right. But it's a, it, the faire les coups in French means to lead a wild life. That's right. And, and so the film, really, the title should be translated as The Wild Life. And it's, it's about this, um, you know, somewhat delinquent young, young fellow. Um, anyway, I thought that held up very well. And... Um, and Godard's films, um, Bond à part, what's that called in English? The, the uh, is it called The Outsiders or something like that? Um, Bond à part and Vie sa vie, I thought held up really well, largely because of the brilliance of Anna Karina, who was somebody I was in love with when I was 19, and I think I still am. But uh, what's that about, do you think? Um, that I, I, I really am curious because. I certainly didn't know before speaking to you just now that for both of us, uh, these movies of, of Romer we so loved don't age well. What, what do you think that's about? And, and, and in my case, I think I watched them precisely when I was 19 and 20 and 21, mm. and they were everything to me. Well, I think what it's about is that they're, they're not very cinematic. You know, they're... they're they're somewhat more, you might say, theatrical. They 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 have very little about them, which is cinema. It, it's it, there's just scenes which are not very unusually shot, um, in which people talk to each other a lot. Whereas in in many of the other great figures of the French New Wave, 
the the films are visually very interesting, you know, um, and original, and and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they why they last, you know. But um, I also felt that Fellini survives completely. I mean, you know, the, the genius of Fellini is undimmed by the passage of time. You know? So I watched. I mean, I I love Eight and a Half, and I love La Dolce Vita, but the the film that I love most of all is Amar Khord, I think. Yes. Um, and watching that again, it's just, it's heartbreakingly beautiful. This portrait of the small town and being young in that small town and observing the life of it and, of course, the coming of fascism. Uh, with these unforgettable images, I mean, who would ever forget the image of the peacock coming down into the town square and spreading its tail feathers in the yes. snow? yes. Absolutely, and and uh, you know, obviously speaking to you, I, I I also think what what influence, if one can use that word, film must have had, or maybe continues to have, or will in a way, in a renewed way, now that you've had this little private festival for yourself, have on you. Yeah, well, Fellini, you know, when I remember when I was beginning to try and work out how I would write the book that became Midnight's Children. I remembered thinking about Fellini's youths growing up in this small, little small world and that how he was somehow able to take these ordinary lives, these very small ordinary lives, and make them representative of very big things. You know, um, And I thought that's something I can learn from. You know? And I think the way in which Fellini used children, teenagers, you know, adolescents, um, and and through them told, if you like, the story of Italy. You know, um, that was something that was really helpful to me. I, I imagine, and also with, we'll come back to that. Perhaps your your love of history. I, I think there must be so much in in film that informed the way, maybe even the way you write a sentence. And I'm curious if Bunuel has held uh, held up so well for you and you know i'm well, i'm particularly taken by this sentence i've discovered recently of Bunuel, where he says i have always been on the side of those who seek truths but i part with yeah. them when they think they have found it yes exactly well Bunuel was a brilliant man i mean he you know he said that he wanted his gravestone to read thank god i die an atheist <laughs> 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 then he had to explain to his atheist friends that he was making a joke. Um, uh, I, I have to say that the discreet child of the bourgeoisie wasn't as good as I remembered. Uh, the film that I think does hold up um, is The Exterminating Angel. Um, this film about these, these, about these high bourgeois people having a dinner party and being for completely unexplained reasons, unable to leave the sitting room and and decaying towards a kind of barbarism in that cage. I thought that succeeded very well. Um, I mean, actually, a lot of these classic films did hold up. And one of the films you were talking about history, one of the kind of history films that I thought really brilliantly held up is Visconti's film of The, of the Leopard. Mm. Um which I think is one of those examples of a great film that is made from a great novel. You know, that, that, uh, it's a small list, that list. Right. But I think the leopard is, uh, Visconti's leopard is every bit as good as the novel. 
And in some ways, because of the lyricism of the filmmaking, um, it's actually better than the novel. That long 20-minute battle scene in it with people running around in the city and the camera running around with them is one of the most fluid and brilliant pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen. And that taught me a lot when I saw it as a young man about how to imagine history on the page. You know, I could talk to you for, for such a long time, Salman, about about film, but I I will, and perhaps we will at some point in the future, and I hope soon, but I, I'd like to talk perhaps about a return to fiction, not that you ever left fiction, of course, but it would seem that now you're returning to, you mentioned Midnight Children a, a while ago, you're returning to writing about India and pre-Mughal <laughs> India. And I'd, I'd love you to say a little bit about what, yeah. what, 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 what this return means for you and perhaps even why now. Well, I think what has happened is that you know, since I came to live in, in New York uh, now more than 20 years ago, a lot of my writing, not all of it, but a lot of my writing has, has been looking primarily at, at the American subject. Uh, um, Fury and Two Years, Eight Months, Twenty Eight Nights, Golden House, and Kishat, all of them are, are American novels. There was a little little foray into India in the middle there in the form of Shalimar the Clown, but but a lot of my attention has been turned towards the West, and um, and I just thought it was time. And I always follow instinct in these matters, and my instinct said time to go back where you came from, you know, and. And I remembered that quite a long time ago now, when I wrote my kind of historical novel, fabulous historical novel, The Enchantress of Florence, um, which moves between the Mughal Empire in, in North India and, and Renaissance Italy, um, I always went thinking, you know, people always talk about the Mughal Empire, and it's, and it's, it's very glamorous in some ways, but South India... Is, is in many ways just as interesting and much, much less known about. And, um, and so I found myself, I thought I, I want at some point to write a novel that comes out of the South rather than out of the North. You know? and, and so I found myself thinking about historical periods which are actually older than the Mughal Empire, a couple of hundred years older, um, when there's an enormous richness of story to be had. You know, from examining what was going on in the South. And even more interestingly for a novelist, a lot of the so-called history of the period is semi-legendary anyway. It's kind of mythologized history. And so there's plenty of room there for the, for the fabulous imagination to work. You know? So, so I, I find myself immersed in, I've been doing a lot of reading. I'm immersed in this world of um, the 14th and 15th centuries in in South India, and and what I've always believed actually about the about historical novels is that they end up being about our time as well as about their own time. Right. Uh, you know, because we are looking at them with the interests and concerns of our time, and those interests and concerns find their expression in the past. We see them in the past. So to write about the past is also to write about the present. And that's what interests me about it, that you know, to be able to, to tell a story which 
ostensibly takes place, you know, six, seven hundred years ago, but has resonances and meanings and echoes which are contemporary. And that's what I'm hoping that I might be able to do. It's in its very early stage. I don't normally talk about a book at this point in gestation uh, of its gestation, but but here we are talking about it. I have a question for you that comes from Suketu Mehta. And he he asks you this, Salman. He says, India today is going through a fraught time, maybe the most perilous since independence, and I include the emergency. Salman, Mm -hmm. do you think that medieval India was arguably more liberal and tolerant than today's India? Oh, uh, the answer is there's no question it was, much more so. In, in these kingdoms that existed in, that I'm reading about in South India, some of them were Hindu kingdoms, some of them were Muslim kingdoms. Um, but there was, first of all, there was enormous interplay between them. There were, uh, the, there were marriages across the religious boundary. Uh, there were Hindu kingdoms which had Muslim generals. Uh, there, there were Muslim kingdoms which had Hindu prime ministers. Um, and in both the Hindu and Muslim kingdoms that existed in the South, there was enormous tolerance uh, of religion. So they were very syncretistic. You know, they, 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 people were allowed to believe whatever they wanted to believe. And, and there was no, I mean, I don't want to over-idealize it, but, it, but, it, but, but that, broadly speaking, that was true. Also, one of the most surprising things to me in reading about these South Indian kingdoms is, is, is the enormously liberated role of many women. Uh, that there were women in the courts who were military guards of the palace. Uh, there were women who were business people, traders and merchants. There were women who were, who were accountants uh, and uh, uh, and you know, in, in other words, women were doing a range of things which was equivalent to what men were doing, and there seemed to be less problem for women doing that than, there, than in some cases there is now in India. Uh, so I do think that the past has much to teach us about the present. In in this, time, I mean, I agree with yeah, Takeshi yeah. that this is a very dark time in yeah. India. I was I was going to address that because I I, I think his his question is in a, in a way in 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 two parts and you answered the second part the the first part is just how as he says how fraught this time is. Yeah, I think unfortunately, India shows signs of sliding at some speed towards totalitarianism, um, and that for someone who grew up in post-independence India, in the India created by Gandhi and Nehru, um, that secularist, democratic, liberal India, it's, it's enormously saddening to see what's happening. What is free speech in this time, or what is freedom of expression in this time? Do you think about it in some way differently than you have in the past? Well, I, I just think it's 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 more important than ever because the in many societies it's as if governments have been using the pandemic as a way of trying to shut down um, expression, yes. trying to limit expression, you know, and under the cover of the pandemic to 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 limit speech, and um, 
Well, in this country, we've just emerged from a four-year period in which there was a relentless attack on the freedom of the press. Um, and it just feels like a relief. I hope it's a long relief, not a short interregnum, um, uh, from that kind of assault, uh, which I never thought to see in a democratic country, much less the country of the First Amendment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of free speech. I've always have been, but I do think it's, it's been unusually under threat in recent years and so needs defending even more emphatically. So, Salman, a return to the films of your, of your youth, uh, a return mm. to India, and as I said earlier, um, such a love that, that really happened, I think, in university um, for, for history. And I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if, if that love of history explains to some, exp to some extent the, the most surprising element uh, I have learned that you are now writing or perhaps finished the play about, mm -hmm. of all things, Helen of Troy, the, considered <laughs> the most beautiful woman in the world, and I, I believe she was a daughter of Zeus and Leda. So I'm just wondering, yeah. what is all that about? <laughs> well, first of all, that's not exactly history, is it? I mean, I that, no, no, mythology, uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're right. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. You're quite right. Um, but I, I've always loved the ancient Greeks, you know, I, I, um, I, I'm a great admirer of that appalling family, the House of Atreus. Um, and, and I've always been very interested in the Trojan War. I never thought that I would write a play about it, much less write a play at a moment when all the theaters in the world are shut. Right. It seems like a lunatic thing to do. Um, and, and then to have the nerve to decide to write the whole thing in, in verse, you know, having never been a poet in my life, to write the play in a mixture of iambic pentameter, which is just, you know, just to be cheeky, the, the meter of Shakespeare, uh, and then some parts of it in a shorter meter in a tetrameter. Um, but that's what ended up happening. And, and it's because I was having, I was in conversation with friends and, and, they asked me if I was interested in writing something about the Greeks. And, and, and I found myself saying that the figure that is interesting is Helen, because, because we, we know almost nothing about her. You know, we, what everybody, the, the name is very famous. What we know about her is that she's beautiful, as you said, and that she launched a thousand ships, which after all, that sentence doesn't come from the Greeks. That comes from Christopher Marlowe in, in Dr. Faustus. But that's about it. Who is she? What does she feel? Why does she make the choices she makes? What does she feel about what happens in the consequence of her choices? Um, there's no character there. You know, if you look at the other Greeks, if you look at Odysseus or Agamemnon or Clytemnestra, you, we know them as people. You know, um, Achilles, we, we, we have a sense of who these people are. Helen, she's an empty space. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, to have an empty space with an incredibly famous name on it, let me try and fill the space. Let me try and write a play in which I 
examine the question of who is she and what does she feel and why does she do what she does and what does she think about what happened as a result of what she did or did it happen as a result of what she did or was she just a pretext? Uh, so I ended up writing this play. It's, it's originally called Helen. Are you at work? Um, are you at work on it, or is is it? No, it's done. It's, it's done. done. Uh, it's done, and and uh, it's done a few months ago. And and what I felt, which I still feel, is that I wanted to try in the first instance to have it produced in London. But partly because there are more subsidised theatres there which put on serious theatre. Partly because there's a tradition of acting which is very well versed in the classics, uh, and even that the audience is 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 well versed in the classics. And I thought, you know, start there, and so, and hopefully then bring it over to you know, hope one can dream of a of a Broadway opening at some point down the road. Um, but anyway, wh- where we are is that I without letting too many cats out of the bag, we do have a producer and a director attached, and we're in the process of talking to theatres uh, to see where it might land up at, at such a mo- at, at whatever moment it is when theatres can reopen. I mean, I suspect, realistically, we would be talking about sometime around the summer of next year or even later than that. Yes, of course, and you know, on, on the quarantine tapes, I've I've had occasion to to speak with Barry Edelstein, who runs the Old Globe in San Diego, and to Tim Robbins and other people in the theatre world. And of course, yes. um, it, it will take it will take some time, but it's it's good for people who will be listening to this to to know that Salman Rushdie has written a play about Helen um, in verse. I mean, who would have known now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, who would have known? Now, um, Salman, you know, you, you were talking about, about the new administration and perhaps lessons learned or ways in which we we might move forward or we might have a different um, four years ahead of us. And there's a quotation, as you can imagine, as you well know, I'm a quotomaniac by profession, <laughs> um, and I love that laugh. There's a quotation by Ernst Bloch, which I'd love you to react to in the context I just set up, where he says that the most tragic form of loss isn't the loss of security. It's a loss of the capacity to imagine that things could be different. Mm. Well, I think it was easy, wasn't it, during the during the four years that have just come to an end to believe that there would not be a better day, you know, that, 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 that this was now the world, that this was a new reality, a new normal, if you like. And I think one of the great reliefs of, of where, we, where we are right now is to see that the world can be different. You know, I mean, just to listen to a government not trying to lie to you, not trying to bully you, and composed of people who are skilled in the, in, in the art of governing, um, led by a man who appears to be a decent human being who actually likes talking to regular folks and, and about their problems and, and, and genuinely trying to help. I mean, we had almost forgotten that 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 a country could be run like this, in the kind of cascade of 
horror that we've had to witness in the last four years. So I do feel quite hopeful uh, right now. You know, obviously this is some kind of honeymoon period for the new government, and we'll see. It will no doubt make its mistakes, but uh, whatever mistakes it makes, they're not going to be mistakes of the sort that that were made under the previous regime. So I think we, we are able once again to imagine something different, you know, and and that's uh, pleasurable, very pleasurable. You know, as as a counterpoint to to the Bloch quotation, I, I read something of James Baldwin, and somehow I imagine that he must resonate with you. Um, the, and uh, as a counterpoint to, to Bloch's quotation, Baldwin says people can cry much easier than they can change, and I, I'm you know in in our in our, in our context now. That really spoke to me because I'm I'm worried yeah. I'm worried about you were talking about using the pandemic and I'm worried about you know all of these grand statements hopeful statements I'm not against them but I'm skeptical about mm. them. Well, I think skepticism is a is a very useful democratic tool that I think we that we need to maintain. Um, I also find it difficult to believe that somehow we're going to enter some beautiful new age in which we, we will be more environmentally conscious and less capitalistically inclined and more generous to our fellow human being, etc. I don't believe any of that will happen. I think we'll be much the same as we were before. But some things may move forward and in many ways must move forward. And since you mentioned Baldwin, one of the things that must move forward is the way in which we uh, understand interracial activity in this country and in the world. You know, the way in which, in which racism and prejudice has played such a substantial part uh, in making the modern what it is, uh, and and how that has to that has to change. That has to change. I hope that this new administration here has has the gumption to do something serious about that. Um, and it's, it will be important, I think, for all of us, because they've talked a good game, but we have to hold them to it and, and try and see what steps forward can be made, uh, which prevent the kind of uh, white racism, the kind of white supremacy, uh, which we must now actually call, let's say, crypto-fascist, uh, whose manifestation we saw so strikingly on the 6th of January. Uh, we have to look at the roots of that. We can't just look at the surface. Salman, when I imagined that I would try to entice you to speak to me again after these eight or nine months passing of this, this uh, pandemic, I read a piece in the New York Times uh, called How to Survive Winter, which was published on December 20th. And there's a wonderful quotation by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a plant ecologist. And she says the following, which seemed to me so interesting. She learned something, or there was a teaching in COVID, she found, which to my mind, I can believe and I can trust in. She says, plants have several survival strategies, like going underground or packing all they need to live into small buds or seeds, but animals are especially exposed. If we die, we die. We don't have buds and seeds. 
they are beautiful metaphorical parallels. What can yeah, go on? I like that. What can go on if we do die? To me, I think about stories. The most important thing is to hold on to the tiny spark of life. She doesn't speak about hope. It is in the bud, in a bud that is our work to hold on to life so that when spring comes back, there can be growth. If you fail at that, spring doesn't matter. That seems like a COVID teaching to me. That's so interesting. You know, what immediately made me, came to my mind since we've been talking about movies is the the movie also, the, the, the movie by Truffaut, but also the book by Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. Yes. In which, in which in a dark time, a time of repression, people preserve stories and know that the stories will one day be their salvation. And they preserve the stories by becoming the stories. They memorize books, and they become their memory of the book. That's all they are. They become the book in memory, so that the, so that the book can be preserved. And so that in another time, when those stories can be told again, there is, there is the material with which to build the future with which to build something better. And I do think that stories are this, they are these storehouses of who we are as human beings and what we, are, and what we can be. They speculate about what we can be. They tell us what we have been. They are, uh, you know, they are the people, stories are the things that tell us who we are. And for me, that's the great value um, of doing this, of, of, of doing this kind of work. That it is through we are we are a narrative animal. We're we're an animal that understands itself by telling stories. Children want stories very early in a, as a way of understanding the world, and that we all of us we live in stories. You know, families have family stories, cities have city stories of the city, communities, secular or religious have stories which define them. Countries have national stories. And we live in these concentric circles of stories, and, and we understand ourselves through them. So stories are the way, stories contain in the most beautiful way what we have been, the potential of what we could be, speculations about how we might, how we might be, and they become, you know, they are the memory of the human race. And, and, um, and it's one of the beautiful things about being in that world being in that world of being, trying to make stories which become, if I'm lucky, which become a part of that collective memory. We, we started with uh, your mini festival private, well, it isn't really mini, it's a huge list of movies you've, you've been watching, Salman. And we, we w I'd like to end our conversation, very sadly, might I add, with music. Music has always been so important to you. And I'm wondering, during this time of the pandemic, and perhaps generally speaking, really, the music that accompanies you. I, I know of, of your love of, of Bob Dylan. Um, you, you wrote so beautifully about him when he got the Nobel Prize, defending that choice very strongly. And I'm wondering, you know, what music is, is keeping you now? And I, I imagine it's 
people, not only people like Dylan, but I imagine there, there are many, many musicians that have mattered to you. And I, I recall that you and I also have such a passion for for Leonard Cohen. Yes, I mean, I, I love I love Leonard Cohen, particularly you know the early stuff. Um, you know the, the the stuff that I think what happens with music is that you remain in love with the music of your youth. You mm-hmm. know, and and uh, for me, I mean, I like a lot of Leonard Cohen's later stuff, but the songs that stick with me are things like, you know, "So Long, Marianne," and 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 Suzanne, and "Hey, hey That's No Way to Say Goodbye." Those songs. Um, and Dylan, yes, again, Dylan was somebody I discovered as a teenager and have never stopped listening to. And then, you know, the more popular music of the time, I mean, I grew up with and still listen to Motown. I mean, I listen to enormous quantities of Motown, you know, um, Smokey Robinson, The Supremes, uh, and so on. I, I, I listen to Nina Simone and Aretha Franklin. And, and as a descendant, if you like, of Dylan, I find myself listening a lot to songwriter performer songwriters like Tom Waits and, and John Prine, who sadly we lost to the coronavirus. Um, so I, that's the kind of music that, that is in my head and, and is, it is sometimes coming out of various machines in my proximity. I must say I, I so regret, I mean, it's one of my, my most fervent regrets is not to have had the occasion to speak to Leonard Cohen. I still hope uh, in my wildest dreams, which may come true, to speak to Tom Waits someday. Yes. Uh, John Prine, I had occasion to speak to Roseanne Cash the very day after John Prine died and Hal Wilner, and yeah. it was such a, a mournful conversation, but Terrible. beautiful Terrible. because Roseanne mm. loved him so much. Did you ever have a chance to actually meet Leonard Cohen? Yes, I was so lucky that you know. I, when I one of the things I did when I was working with Penn um, was we we gave uh, lifetime achievement prizes in 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 the writing of, of song lyrics, and in the very first year that we awarded that those prizes, we gave uh, we gave prizes to Leonard Cohen and to and, and Chuck Berry. Goodness. Um, uh, and we had a wonderful event at the Kennedy Library in Boston, uh, where they came to receive their prizes, and um, and I was asked to to make the little encomium to Leonard Cohen, and Paul Simon wrote sort of said said something about about Chuck Berry, and what I remember actually is that Leonard Cohen said a very beautiful thing himself about Chuck Berry. He said um, at one point. Uh, he was basically saying that everything started with Chuck Berry and nothing would have been possible without him. And he said, if Beethoven hadn't rolled over, there wouldn't have been room for any of us. <laughs> That's magnificent. <laughs> and then I had, the, I had the amazing experience at the end when I gave him his award and hugged the medal around his neck, that he leaned forward with his little hat on and kissed me. Goodness. So I have been, I have been kissed by Leonard Cohen Paul. Well, well, you know, you. I, I think it's even more important and perhaps more significant than you having been knighted. Oh, much more important. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have wanted to be kissed by the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Salman, what a pleasure on 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 that uh, sur cette note joyeuse, on that joyous note. I leave you yeah. now, but only for now. And I thank you so much, Salman, for taking this time. Um, we went from from films to to your writing, uh, to your return to to India, and to to so many other things we discussed. And 
as I hope the listeners um, can tell, there's, there's so much more to to say, so many more stories to share. But really, well, it's been a real delight, Paul. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Take good care and stay safe. And I hope I see you before long. Yes, me too. Okay, bye bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.